evening, everybody. Welcome to Theology on Tap. We're so glad that you are here. Grab, uh, we've got some pizza. Is there any more pizza left? There's a little bit of pizza left. You can grab a slice. You can grab a drink. Grab a seat. I think I just oh, went that out. Very clever. Yeah. Welcome. If this is your first time, we're glad that you are here. But we're going to get started. You'll see these kind of around the room. You will need these because the second half of our time together, any t really any part of this evening, you can text and anonymously you can send in uh, any question that you have related to what we talk about tonight or not. It's this top QR code. If you want to stay up to date with all things Theology on Tap, we send out emails every so often to tell you when we're meeting and what we've done. You can sign up for our email list here below. A couple of announcements this evening. Uh, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday, and it starts Lent. We're going to talk about what all that is, why that might be important tonight. Uh, you'll notice we brought more books than we have in a while because we have so much goodness that we want to talk about this evening, always come and check out the books up here. And that leads me actually to the third thing. Tonight, normally we stick around and hang out and talk for quite a while sometimes, but there's going to be an event that's in here at 845. So we finish at 830. We're just going to follow Clark all the way to the music hall and the VIP room and the courtyard out there. Just Henry's basically. Music Hall, not the Charleston Music Hall. <laughs> no, that would be a long ways away. Don't go down the steps. Just go outside that door out there, and we'll have another drink and keep talking. So that's what we'll do tonight because they've been so gracious with us to always make space for us, but we want to be accommodating as best we can for the stuff they've got going on. So what's your name? One of my, oh, yeah. I think I said my name, didn't Did I say? You? Uh, Justin Hare, if I... I might have said it earlier when everybody was talking, but who are you? Brian. <laughs> Brian. Nice to see y'all. Fantastic. So why would we talk about Lent? What does Lent even mean? What is Ash Wednesday? What is all this about? So uh, part of the reason we're talking about it is that it is an ancient practice of Christians that still carries on in some parts of the church, but not in all parts of the church. And a lot of times we are very quick to throw out things that are ancient practices and so we don't need those anymore. But a really better question to ask is, why is that a practice that lasted for so long? And so what we want to do is lean into Lent. And one of the things about Lent uh, that you can tell about it just from the name is that it is connected with the Latin and French word for slow and length. And so uh, I would if I were to ask all of you to describe your life, probably no one in this room would say, my life is really slow. There's just nothing going on. I'm not busy at all. If you are that person, please come talk to me afterwards. <laughs> uh, but I think part of the reason that Lent is so helpful is that we do tend to be people who are living in a very busy world with a lot of stuff coming at us all the time. And Lent, um, I love the way the prayer book says this um, in the Ash Wednesday service, which we'll get to Ash Wednesday in just a second. Um, but in the Ash Wednesday service, the priest invites people who are there to the observance of a holy Lent. And it talks about um, fasting, reflection, self-denial, prayer, focusing on God's word, and silence. And 
those are all things that probably most of us don't have a lot of in our day-to-day -day life. And Lent is supposed to be almost like a reset button um, to, in the midst of the frenetic pace of your life, to go back and look at what are my priorities, especially if you're a Christian, what are my priorities and how does my life line up with what my priorities are, is the way I'm using my time moving me in the direction of knowing God and enjoying him, or is it leading me in a different direction? And Ash Wednesday is the traditional kickoff for that. Today is Shrove Tuesday, uh, which comes from the old medieval English word to shrive. Shriving. Sure, y'all use that word a lot. I've been striving all. Sh shriving or striving? Shriving. Uh, shriving. No, I don't know what that is. You means. are shrived by a shrivener. Uh, if you remember Canterbury Tales, there's a Shrivener in Canterbury Tales. Um, but the sh shriving is confessing your sins. And so Shrove Tuesday, um, right before Ash Wednesday, it's also known as Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, where you're using up all the food in the house that you're going to give up during Lent. Uh, but Ash Wednesday traditionally is observed in the church with a service that has some silence and prayer and reflection. And then at some point during the service, you go up to the altar and kneel and the priest comes and dips his finger in ashes that are made out of the palms from Palm Sunday that are burned. And he makes the sign of the cross on your forehead and says, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And we live in an age that likes to believe that um, death is not really something that will ever happen to us. Uh, and we deny death, and we don't think about death at all. And we certainly don't want to become morbidly obsessed about it. But the flip side of that is we need to remember that we're mortals, and that our lifespan is not unlimited. And therefore, we need to be using the time that we've been given um, in ways that um, would give honor and glory to God if we're Christians. All right, that was a very long answer. <laughs> no, Sorry. that was pretty good. Uh, I think, so if you just stumbled in here and you like have never been here, never even been to church, Lent uh, is a season in the church calendar. It's part of the season, as you allude to. Uh, leading up to Easter, and that's when Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so one of the things that if you're not from a liturgical background, if you've never really been to any church at all, Lent uh, it, in seasons of the church are important because Christians tell time differently. So if you even are from a non-liturgical background, you've been to a, maybe a Christmas service or an Easter service, but um, liturgical traditions recognize that the whole year is marked by moments either following along with Jesus' life. So you think about Advent, that time leading up to Christmas, it's about the um, conception of Jesus and, and Mary and then leading up to his birth. Lent is the 40 days approaching Easter to commemorate the 40 days that Jesus uh, was tempted in the wilderness in his ministry. And that's kind of one of these seasons that, why I love the liturgical tradition. I hated it for a long time. It felt very dry and formal, but I've grown to love it because it, it forces you to enter into seasons that you wouldn't normally go into, right? It, 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 like reading all of the Bible, not just your favorite parts of it, but Lent is like one of those where you're confronted with a part of life that you wouldn't 
naturally be confronted with. As you mentioned, we kind of live in a society that puts death all on the periphery. We don't want to see it. We, we don't want to talk about it. I know some folks who consider, tell their children that death is like a curse word almost. It's crazy how much we avoid death. But as you talked about also, you know, uh, confessing our sins, trying to live a life of repentance. Those are some of the major themes of, of Lent. And you mentioned Ash Wednesday as well, but how, let's go a little bit more specifically into why Ash Wednesday, which kicks off Lent, is particularly helpful for our society today. What, what might we glean from? What, how can we live into this season well? And how does it speak to us? Yeah, I think that's a great question. One of the things that I think is so important about Ash Wednesday uh, is that it's a great example of, and this is gonna sound like it's not relevant, but it is. Uh, there's a great Mumford and Son song called I Will Wait. And part of the lyric in that song is so break my step and relent and part of what we need i think in our lives if your life is anything like the way mine is a lot of times is to break our step to pause to not just keep after everything that we're after all the time but to break our step and to pause and to actually reflect about who we are to think about if you're a christian who you are before god um, to enter in to a time of some self-reflection and penitence. And Ash Wednesday, uh, one of the things that is in that invitation that I mentioned is self-reflection. And we, uh, even though we think a lot about ourselves, probably don't do a lot of reflection in the way that the prayer book is talking about. And in the medieval period, that reflection used to be centered around the seven deadly sins which I'm always really bad at remembering all of them, but it's pride, greed, lust, gluttony, envy, sloth. Avarice. Avarice. No, avarice and greed are the same thing. Are those the same? Okay. There's one other one. <laughs> but anyway, uh, those are things we never think about. Do you ever sit and take a long pause to think about what are the major areas in my life where I'm falling short, um, where um, I might not be pleasing to God where I'm not living into who God has made me to be. And so I think Ash Wednesday is kind of a, almost a hard stop mm -hmm. that brings us face, literally face to face with our mortality, which is why those black ashes on the forehead are so much part of it. And Lent, uh, Ash Wednesday is a, a signal that this is no longer business as usual mm -hmm. and that we are um, we are entering intentionally into something. Yeah. Curious, how many people have ever uh, tried to walk and do Lent before? Okay, yeah, so a decent number. I grew up doing it. I think what I remember is like, okay, you give up something. That was kind of how I always thought of Lent. And usually it would be like if you're a kid, give up chocolate or other sweets or something like that. Maybe if you're still an adult, you, you're doing that. Um, and so there are a number of ways I think we can approach Lent that might be helpful, might not be as helpful. I brought a little something that was put on my door, and I think it's a great illustration of a, a not a helpful way that many people maybe approach Lent. And it's a, it's a picture of Jesus <laughs> saying, I saw that. <laughs> and I don't know about you, if you've done it before, you're like, okay, well, I've got to clean myself up. 
because Jesus is always looking at me and he sees everything that I'm doing and so and I better shape up I better shape up zap me or he's gonna yeah. zap me exactly <laughs> and if you approach Lent that way you're not only not really gonna change maybe a couple days of self-will uh, but you'll be right back into the same things if you're trying to make God happy with you by working and cleaning yourself up you'll never get there The beauty of the Christian faith that is so important when it comes to Lent is that we don't make ourselves right in God's eyes. That's what he came down and did in his son, Jesus. And so we accept that forgiveness, not because of how good we are or how hard we work, but purely just receiving that from him. But he doesn't just accept us in his son. He also begins this slow process of changing us and making us more like Jesus. And that's what Lent is. It's grace-driven. Any sort of effort is all in gratitude to what he's done for us. And that's the only way, that's the first thing I would say is how you approach Lent. Really important that you start with gratitude. Yes. And the other thing I would say is that it is, you know, it's easy where there's such an emphasis, as Justin was saying, on giving something up. And that, that actually can be a really good thing to do but it can also be really not a good thing if you're not like in the right frame of mind about it. And some people think giving up something for Lent is like the the 40-day version of the 17-day diet, um, and that it's just you know it's a self-improvement program. New Year's resolutions round two. Yeah, exactly. Since we didn't make it. That's right. Uh, and the the problem with that is that it's just totally wrong, uh, and it doesn't it doesn't work that way. But the the nuance there is that there is a sense in which Lent, when it's observed and practiced well, can be like a training program. Mm -hmm. So for example, think about if you were going to run a 5K race and you just didn't train at all, at all, and you ate this yummy pizza like (laughs) three meals a day and donuts for like a month before this race, and you had never run, and then you went to run the race you would be miserable and you would probably throw up on people and it would be awful. On the other hand, if you started a training program to prepare for the race with some of your friends and you ran a little bit each day and you followed um, kind of a regimen to get ready, by the time the race came, you would be in your zone and you would enjoy the run and you would enjoy being with your friends and feeling the, the joy of that experience. And the reason that you would be able to have that joy is because of the training that you did. And so as you look toward Easter um, as a Christian, if you have walked through Lent, it prepares you for the joy of Easter in a way that you just can't experience without that preparation. Yeah, which requires, as you said, self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Time to actually not just, okay, slow down, and but to take time to think about how you've been living. And this is why one of the things um, I would encourage you, if, if you struggle with, say, gossip, or if you struggle with, with drinking too much, like, don't give up chocolate. You know, give up things that are actually things, that, you know, or take on something. That I used is, to have a friend that gave up cheese every year. He hated cheese. Yeah. <laughs> he never ate cheese. Congratulations. Yeah. You're doing nothing yeah. in your and training. like, I didn't eat any all through yeah. life. So picking something where you actually need to grow in, which requires that self-reflection. And and I think that's one of the things. You're never going to have the courage to actually name with honesty 
your real sins, you're never going to be able to look yourself really in the mirror until you actually know that you're fully forgiven in Jesus. That gratitude for what he's done in taking our punishment enables us to have an accurate picture of ourselves. And that's part of Lent is actually, as you're saying, looking clearly at the messiness, at the brokenness in our lives. And I've got a, I've got a couple quotes tonight from, this is an amazing book, by the way, Prayer in the Night by Tish Harrison Warren. She goes through this prayer that we do every Wednesday. Uh, it's in Compline. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. She goes through the whole day. It's, it's really, really good. But she talks about a couple things. I'll say the Ash Wednesday, her first, first Ash, Ash Wednesday service, she went, and uh, she went up there, and there was a mom and, like, a preteen girl right next to her at the altar rail getting the ashes on the forehead. So she comes by, and then the, the priest does the ashes on all three of them, and then she hears the preteen look over at her mom. The first thing she says is, Mom, do my ashes look all right? <laughs> she started laughing uh, because that's all of our hearts. The whole point is, no, they didn't look all right. They're a bunch of black smudge on your face. You can't make right your there. ashes yep. look good. And that's the whole point is that our sins, our brokenness, it's not meant to look good. She has this amazing quote in here about weakness. And I think this is so timely for those in a social media age where uh, she talks about fashionable weakness. So people being vulnerable or weak and kind of posting that. So it's, it's like a paragraph and a half to listen to this. She goes, um, I'm not talking about that uh, fashionable weakness. It's a trend now to meticulously display imperfection online. Messiness can be part of our personal brand. We don't like people who seem too put together. So many Christian leaders go out of their way to show us just how messy they are but it's also very curated. Our truest weaknesses will never be a selling point. It's those things that uh, the people closest to us know about us that we'd rather forget, or perhaps that we don't even know about ourselves. It's those things we'd never share in a job interview and that people, we hope, won't mention in our eulogy. If sharing our imperfections makes us seem cooler and more approachable, it's not true weakness. The things that are really wrong with us are embarrassing and uncomfortable. True vulnerability is too tender to trust with any except those who love us most. Sharing this part of ourselves with our community makes us more whole, but it will never help our brand. That is true weakness. It's not going to make you seem cooler. It's not going to make you seem more approachable. We sure hope people won't talk about it in our eulogies. Yes. But that's what Lent is really all about. That's what the church is meant to be. Is, as, and notice that part where she says it's going to actually make us more whole and we're going to receive healing. And that's why I think Lent is so important is that we do it not just with me and Jesus, but we do this together right. as a community. Yeah, and it's also not an accident that very often you hear people talking about the idea of walking through Lent or the Lenten pilgrimage because it really is It's a journey and it's an inward journey, but it's also a journey toward the cross. And the church helps you with this. One of the things I love about the Anglican tradition is that it is so um, embracing of all of the senses. And, you know, Ash Wednesday, there's touch. I mean, how often do you give somebody permission to touch your face and make a mark on it? But there's touch. Um, 
<coughs> later in the season at Holy Week, yeah. um, we're going to have some amazing musical things that we'll talk to you all about. But then on Good Friday, after that service, we literally have the Stations of the Cross service where we will get in a big procession and read the gospel of what happened on the day that Jesus was crucified. I mean, and so you're literally doing a physical journey on that day, but there's a metaphorical and spiritual journey through Lent um, that can be a time of great joy, um, but not in the way that we think of. We usually think of joy as excess, but I think of this as being sort of a spare joy that where there's room and there's quiet and there's silence um, and there can be peace in the midst of that in a way that we don't usually experience. Yeah, it's so, it's not superficial and it's definitely not loud and boisterous, but that's exactly what's so countercultural about it. As you were talking about just the intimacy of, of putting on ashes I and mean, ever since I've been in ministry now and, and I've done this, I can't make it through without weeping. Yeah. I've looked at my children and remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. I mean, you try saying that to your kids and make it through without crying. I, I can't do it. I can't do it to anybody. I mean, people who are on their last year of life, I've done that as well. It's amazing. It's similar to um, the uncomfortable nature, the intimacy of foot washing that happens sometimes. Jesus on the night before he died, he washed his disciples' feet to show the depth of his love. Most everybody here is like, that's gross. I would never let anybody touch my feet. That's what Peter did in yeah. Jesus' day. But the intimacy of that is part of why it's so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And the, the physical touch of touching somebody's feet or having the priest look you in the eyes and say this, it is, it, it's a vulnerable position. But it's something that if you can have the courage to take the step to actually enter into, boy, it can fill something in you that you never really even knew maybe you had. Yeah, and I think it's such a, Lent is such a beautiful time to experience what the incarnation means, um, what it means that Jesus became human and walked on this earth and left footprints and was flesh and blood just as we are. And, you know, the word carnival, which is uh, Marty Bros last night of, means farewell to flesh, farewell to meat. Incarnation literally means becoming flesh, mm -hmm. and that Jesus entered into that for us. And so that, that tactile nature of things, I think it's very much part of the understanding what Jesus' love for us means. Yeah, that's good. Um, let's see. So the ashes that represent our repentance, right? This is a common metaphor in the Bible. They would sit in sackcloth and ashes as a sign of their repentance. Doesn't Jesus say not to show off people's repentance? He doesn't even tell the Pharisees mm -hmm. he rebukes them for that. Mm -hmm. So why are we getting ashes on our foreheads? Uh, that is a really good question. Uh, so Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, uh, he's talking in the section where he talks about um, that, giving alms and praying and in all three of them, he says, when your purpose is to be seen by men, that your reward, that's all the reward you're going to get is that people look at you and think, oh, how pious. Uh, but that actually the transaction is not for other people. It's a transaction that's in your heart between you and God. And so in that sense, 
The ashes are an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, as we say when we're talking about sacraments. Um, so that it is, um, it is a mark, but it's not a mark saying, oh, look, I went to church today. I'm better than you are. Um, it is a mark of saying, I am embracing my mortality. I am embracing the limitedness of this mortal life and I'm entering into a season of reflection and repentance. And the other thing about that is repentance is one of the most misunderstood words and um, language that Christians throw around. Because a lot of people think when you say repentance, it means saying, I'm sorry. Well, that's part of it. But the word repent literally means to turn around. So it means that you're going in one direction and you realize that that direction is leading you somewhere that is not where you should go. And so you literally turn around and you turn away from that direction and turn back, um, spiritually speaking, back toward God. So it is much more proactive than just a feeling. Yeah, that's good. I would also draw attention to the fact that the ashes are in the shape of a cross, mm -hmm. which though, ashes in the Old Testament was a sign of your own in repentance. These ashes are in the sign of a cross because even our repentance, in some way, I forget who said it, need repenting of. Right. We, yes. we can't clean ourselves up even in our repentance exactly. We needed the cross of Jesus to actually forgive all of us. And that's what it, it, the sign of the, the ashes was kind of a symbol of all that's wrong, all that's messy, all that's broken in us and in the world. And the cross is the point where Jesus paid for it, and we remember his resurrection, which ultimately defeats even the, the death which is, comes out of sin, the, the wages of sin being death. That's what Jesus died for on the cross. That's what he rose again to bring new life to. One more quick thing I would bring out about Lent is oftentimes we can get so introspective and so much about, you know, it's good to actually self-examine and to look at our own lives, but... I mean, there is so much right now in the world out there of, of just all evidences of what is, what's going on, what is wrong with the world today. And I think there's also a corporate, a communal nature of Lent where we can cry out to God on behalf of the world around us. We can lament uh, all that's wrong in the lives of our friends or family and communities and society. And that's what God invites us to do, not just with ourselves, but everything in the world. And we don't I don't think enter into the season of Lent as, you know, hopeless, woe is me kind of stuff, because again, the cross is the promise that Jesus is actually at work, even in the worst of the things in the world. He's coming to make all things right. And, and that's, I think, a way to remember as we enter into this time that we don't grieve, we don't mourn, we don't lament without hope. Yes. And I think the other aspect of that, that's part of the corporate aspect, is that and I know you think, oh, Justin and Brian are priests, of course, you're going to say this. Um, and there may be a, ooh, an element of truth in that. But <laughs> I would say, trying to be objective, uh, that walking through Lent in the fellowship of the other people that are on the journey of Lent is a major part of what makes that meaningful. So going to Ash Wednesday services, going to Holy Week services, going to church on Sundays. Those times of being in fellowship are really important. And the other thing that I would say is that Lent is a great time to uh, choose to live 
under a rule of life. Um, so that's 40 days, that's not a real long time, but it can be a time where you decide to change the rhythm of your daily life. And that can be a really wonderful way to open the windows of your soul to the Holy Spirit and to leave out some things in your life that you know draw you away from God and to put into your life on a daily basis sort of scheduled in things that will be um, drawing you toward God. So I'm actually going to try to do a rule of life during Lent. It's difficult to say this out loud because now y'all can ask me about what I'm actually doing it. Um, but I think that that is going to be something that will be really meaningful and to start trying to incorporate scheduling some times of silence into my life. I'm going to try to schedule in some times to read some devotional poetry like John Donne and George Herbert, Jared Manley Hopkins, people like that that sort of open your soul. Um, spend some time uh, with different devotionals, those kinds of things, because I think when you make an intentional um, rule that you're going to live under each day, um, you have much better odds of actually um, living into Lent and leaning into Lent instead of just thinking that it's a nice idea. That's right. Yeah, journaling, writing, as you self-examine, as you talk about, as you look at your life, write some of these things down. Write some goals down. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be crazy original. I mean, it could just be, I'm going to rest one day a week. That would be a pretty radical thing, that I'm going to actually not do any work. I'm not going to be on my phone. That might be, and I'm going to do that one day out of the week. Yeah. And... You know, Media and fun fasting can be a great yeah. thing to or, do. I'm going to get eight hours of sleep. Now, there may be people who are like sleeping too much, and that's, again, <laughs> do this, the sin that is really most pertinent to you. But if you're workaholic, taking a time off of work and you know saying no to, to folks and making sure you're actually attuning to your body and getting rest, those things honor God. Those are things that you ought to be doing. Yep. So what's that book? Well, this is, as you were talking about a rule of life, I thought, that's ah, probably one that we've talked we've about. We've talked about this before. If you don't own this book, do yourself a favor, get it. It's really good. Uh, it will challenge some of your assumptions about the way that you live your life um, and give you some, what I would consider to be really life-giving practices that will help draw you more and more into the joy that God desires for you. Yeah, The Common Rule by Justin Whitmill early. Um, all right, so let's go to some questions now. Take a minute or so. Those of you who want to sit down, thank you all for sitting up this whole time. We do have some spots on the, the uh, stairs if you'd like, or maybe folks will scoot over. I don't know. But take a minute. How, who's doing the moderating tonight? Lizzie. Yeah. Okay, we're good. <laughs> okay, yeah, so everybody go and vote on some. Do you want me to go ahead and ask the top one? Well, I'm going to give some folks some time. Unless you, I mean, if there's clearly a top one, go ahead. There's a top one. Um, what is your view of the Asbury Revival? Oh, that's a good one. That is a great question. So, um, how many of y'all have heard about the Asbury Revival? All right, some. Um, so, the Asbury Revival, there's a small Christian college in Kentucky called Asbury that also has a pretty well known seminary with it. And um, I guess about 10 days ago uh, in a chapel service where they were um, having a worship service, uh, there was a challenge to repentance and one of the students got up and started 
um, being pretty vulnerable in the in a in a good way um, about some of his struggles and sins and begging for God's forgiveness and presence. And as that went on, more and more people leaned into that, and the worship continued. And there was a very deep sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit, and people continued to be motivated to worship. And so that has been going on pretty much nonstop for about 10 days now, and has spread to a bunch of other universities. And um, my sense about it, there, there are different opinions about it, um, but my sense about it is that it is something that is sincere and that seems to be characterized by worship and peace and humility, that they're not really seeking publicity, and in fact, they've shunned a lot of publicity that people are trying to put on them. Um, but the thing that's interesting is that there have been a lot of people from all over that decided to just go there, which that's a whole other question um, about whether that's a good thing or not. But I think that uh, people choosing to lean into worship and repentance and wanting to be pleasing to God and leaning into deep fellowship, that those are good things. Yeah, so many good things to celebrate. I don't care what you call it. Like, look, this was a, I watched the message in the chapel service that the guy gave and the focus was on Jesus Christ. Yeah. Again, anybody who's coming and confessing their sins before God, is a, that's a good sign, right? It's humility. The, the, they're singing worship songs to Jesus. I've seen a lot of times where there's a really a, a lot of manipulation to get a certain emotional response. There doesn't seem to and be a, a whole lot of that, yeah. if, if any, that I've seen. Again, I haven't been like studying it 24-7. Um, so yeah, a lot of good things to celebrate about what it is. Uh, you know, th these, who knows what, what can happen. I think one thing that I would want to say is the language of like, we need to go up there and catch some of that and bring it back. It sounds like COVID almost. Like you, you don't need to go up there and catch something and bring it back. You can go to church. Like Jesus has promised every Sunday when the gathering of his people are and the word is read, that actually is the same sort of revival where we confess our sins, we, we sing songs. Like that same thing happens every week in, in church. So go. You know, and we like, do actually believe that the Holy Spirit is real and that the Holy Spirit does work and people's lives and that the Holy Spirit brings people together in worship in a way that is extraordinary and palpable and some of y'all who are here tonight have been um, at camp when that has happened and there have been times where we were in worship at camp and you know worship time was over and you know people could go home back to their cabins and then they would elect to stay for three more hours because you could just sense the presence of God in that place. So um, I think the best thing we can do as we think about the Esbury Revival is to pray for those people and to pray that our hearts would be open to whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Yeah. Can you defend the Anglican view of the Eucharist compared to the Catholic view? Is the bread and wine actually Jesus' blood, body and blood? Which view is biblical? Uh, that is a great question, and there have been centuries and centuries and centuries of debates about that, and thousands of pages of 
theological tomes and multiple languages written about that. Um, I'm not interested in trying to defend um, particularly a point of view. I will say that the Anglican understanding is that in the sacrament of Holy Communion that we experience through faith the real presence of Christ in the communion elements. Um, we do not believe that there is a change on the level of atoms and molecules where those elements change um, into the flesh and blood of Christ. But we do believe that there is the presence of the Holy Spirit in that in a way that is a holy mystery. Um, that it is not a mere memorial, that there is something that is holy and sacred about that. And um, the Catholic view is a little bit different from that, but uh, one, one of the things that we do believe is in the Anglican understanding that Christ's work on the cross was, uh, as we say in our liturgy, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, and that that was accomplished once on the cross, but that as we participate in the sacrament of Holy Communion, that we are, again, through that holy mystery, linked in with all of the Christians who have gone before us who have um, partaken of that sacrament as well. Do you want to add? I just want to reiterate, I really like the way you said, I have no interest in defending any of these positions. I haven't been Catholic, but I've been on the other side of the spectrum where this is not, like in the, in the whole sacrament of you know, bread and wine, there were some who would say there's no presence whatsoever, not, not even in or through these right. elements. Like that's another, it's hard to define even Anglican because the, the Thomas Cranmer, the first um, you know, Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury, his view was that it wasn't in the elements at all, but it was through the elements the, into heaven yeah, where Christ yeah, was. Yeah. Now, I was on the other side of the Catholic spectrum, which was, this is just about my commitment to Jesus and his people. It's all about what I'm doing for God, because it, it really isn't about Jesus being present. And I'm back to being an Anglican, but these are, like, in a day where it's just hard enough to be a Christian, we need to unify on secondary matters, like the question of how is Jesus present if he is in communion. I would much rather talk about the things that we do have in common, um, rather than something that is a secondary issue like that. I'm gonna ask one question about Lent and then go back to the next most liked question. Um, how do you balance diet diet culture slash self-improvement with true temptations to give up during Lent? Yeah. That is such an important question. And I think that it's hard to draw a bright line there, but I think most of it has to do with motivation. Um, if your motivation is um, to do what Justin was talking about with the preteen girl, um, to have it be sort of about managing your brand and your image, um, that's probably a sign that you're on the wrong side of the, the dividing line. Um, but I do think that giving up, giving up something that you enjoy that might also be good for you to give that up in a physical sense and might make you look better at the end of Lent, um, that's not wrong. Um, you know, if it's something that uh, you can see is something that's a temptation for you, 
and that part of the idea of self-denial, and we've lost a lot of this because it's like my friend that gave up cheese, um, we're not so interested in the self-denial part, we just want to be able to say we gave up something. But the part of the purpose of self-denial is like, I really love Trader Joe's chocolate, turbinado, sugar, and sea salt almonds. I mean, seriously, they're amazing. Um, but they're probably not like the greatest thing for you to be eating like a whole 10 of them at once. Um, but if, if my focus is I'm going to give those up just because I need to lose weight, that's not particularly helpful. If I decide to give those up because I know that they're not particularly good for me and that every time that I start thinking about wanting one, I take that moment of that want and turn that into prayer and to focusing on Jesus, that is where you want to be. That's where the self-denial comes in, the, where you feel that want. That's where you turn that want into prayer that you would want Christ more than you would want that whatever it is. Yeah, yeah I definitely think motivation has a lot to do with it. You have to recognize in different cultures, different body types were more attractive. We And so I think how much do you care about what this is doing to you externally? We don't hear much about what God says for us externally in terms of our beauty. We are told this in 1 Peter chapter 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. I think that's true for men and women. This is what we see. So the, the question is, are you honoring God in your diet and your exercise? Because it says also in 1 Corinthians that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. So your motivation, why am I doing this? Hopefully it's to honor God by eating well and exercising well, taking care, being a good steward of what he's given you. But ultimately, if it's to, to look and fit a certain body type in a given culture, th that I think is maybe That's a step a too far. Yeah. 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 But great question. Okay. Why does the church demonize same-sex marriages but doesn't hold its members accountable when it comes to other sins which Jesus said were as bad or worse? Uh, that is a great question, and I think the answer to that uh, is, well, let me first say, I can't speak for the entire Christian church. Uh, that may be a surprise to y'all, but... Uh, <laughs> but my, my personal sense about that is that the church is full of sinners and hypocrites and that it's very easy to demonize all sorts of things if they're not the particular thing that you struggle with. And I, I think that uh, there are churches and I would like to think that we are one of those where I wouldn't say that we demonize any sin um, but that we do say that we hold to what the scriptural definition of sin is, um, but that we acknowledge that all of us struggle with all sorts of sins, and that the church is supposed to be a hospital for sinners rather than a museum for saints, and that our, our hope would be um, to come alongside anyone struggling with any sin and to try to help them to um, walk in a way that would help them to experience 
um, what God desires for them that's revealed in Scripture. I just preached uh, on Wednesday service last week from Matthew 5 where Jesus says, uh, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And a couple things that were important is Jesus himself actually upholds the Old Testament law. He said, I didn't come to break the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it. In fact, he takes it all the way down to the heart level where it's not just okay to do, like it's not just wrong to do the actions, but actually the heart and the mind, what we think, what, what we um, say, like these things are on the same level, right? And so he takes it all the way to the root. And the, the crazy thing is we live in a day that sexuality is the thing that makes your identity is what people believe. Like it's the core component of who you are. And so therefore to say, actually you can't, you shouldn't do that. That's the, like the one thing you shouldn't say. But Jesus has enough to say on this topic of sexuality and really all the Ten Commandments. That's, that's enough to offend everybody. And what I would say is it, recognizing that he's made, like if he's made the world a certain way, that his commands are not meant to restrict us. That's been the lie from the beginning that he doesn't, he's just trying to keep us under his thumb. And particularly this one with sexuality is if you listen to God and try to obey what his word says, then um, that's going to be oppression. No, Jesus is saying if you're going to follow me and live according to my word, it's going to bring the fullness of life. And now there may be the rest of your life that you struggle with some of these things, but the central part of the Christian faith is that there's an eternity where all, even our desires will be perfectly perfected in eternity. And so just to say, well, in this life, is, is really all that there is. No, even even your sexuality, as important as that is, is just a blip. And and so following, being obedient to what Jesus says about our sexuality actually leads us to the deepest joy. And there are folks who I know who struggle with same-sex attraction who believe Jesus' words and are committed to living in obedience to him, even if that means they can't be in marriage, as Jesus defines it, between a man and a woman. And they say, Nevertheless, I know that what he's going to redeem me when I get to heaven is going to be worth it. And it, it, I think that's something we can lose sight of. Yeah, and I think the other aspect of that where it's been interesting, there's been such a sea change about how important sexuality is to our identity just really in the past 10, 15 years. Um, but the remarkable thing is that today, most people would think the inability to be what we would call sexually fulfilled um, is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And to deny that to someone is the worst thing that could ever happen. But Christians understand that very differently, that you are made in the image of God and that you are made with all sorts of remarkable gifts and abilities and things that make you who you are and that your sexuality is only one small part of that. And our understanding is that Jesus lived the most perfect, joyful life that has ever been lived. And of course, Jesus was single and celibate. So sexual fulfillment, as beautiful as that can be, um, is not the be all and end all of your identity. But uh, going, yeah, we should not demonize any sin over any other, and I think the church certainly has been uh, culpable in, in doing that at times, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. What do you do if you really want to believe but struggle with doubt? 
Oh, that's such a good question. Um, one of the things I love about the Christian faith is that when you are reading in the Gospels, which if you struggle with doubt, one of the things I'd encourage you to do is to read, sit down and read an entire Gospel at once. Um, and then also if you're struggling about whether to believe what's in the Gospels, um, read the book by Peter Williams, Can We Trust the Gospels? But uh, when you read in the Gospels and you read about Jesus' encounter with Thomas, um, it is such a powerful story because uh, for those of you who don't know, um, the Christian understands Jesus died on the cross and then he was raised from the dead miraculously by the power of God. And then he appeared to the disciples and Thomas, who was one of the disciples who had been with Jesus through these three years of public teaching and ministry, been with him 24-7 and had seen him die on the cross but wasn't there when Jesus appeared said, I don't believe it. I won't believe it. Y'all are crazy unless I can put my finger into the wounds on his hands and put my hand into his side. I am not going to believe that he actually has risen from the dead. And there are two really interesting things that happen. One is that the rest of the disciples don't say, Oh, you faithless doubter, scum of the earth, be gone, we have nothing to do with you. They kept him in their fellowship. And then the next time that Jesus came, the first thing that Jesus does is he turns to Thomas and without any condemnation says to him, Thomas, put your hand, put your finger into the wounds of my hand, put your hand in my side. And it's such a beautiful example of that when you doubt, you need to bring those doubts prayerfully to Jesus and to other Christian friends um, who are walking with you, um, to not feel guilty about doubts, um, to not feel that those doubts um, somehow mean that you can't follow Jesus, uh, but to, to bring them um, to Christ. I think sometimes we think as faith and doubt are, are more opposed to each yeah. other than they really are. One of my favorite things to think about in terms of this issue is uh, the Israelites leaving Egypt, going through the Red Sea. So just imagine the scene. Israel is, um, you know, the, the Egyptians are coming and they're trapped and then Moses holds up his staff and the, the waters of the Red Sea part. And all of a sudden Moses leads the people of Israel out and you can just imagine like, 40, 50, 60 foot walls of water on the side. And so the people of Israel are walking through uh, on dry ground. And I would have to imagine that there'd be at least some of them. I know I would be one of the people there looking around at all the walls of the water going, we're going to die. Like, we're going to die. This is not going to work. And, but they're walking. That's what the faith is. The faith is walking. You can doubt. I don't know if this is going to actually, you know, hold up, but are they walking? And they make it through, and then the waters come down after them. And, um, you know, Christianity is something that can only be tested truly from once you get inside of it. Once you actually take some steps and begin to walk, can you really test it out? And, and so, yeah, faith and doubt, I think, kind of go... Two sides I, I, of a coin. Two sides of the yeah. same coin. I've heard yeah. somebody say that... Uh, of, of, Faith without doubt is kind of like a body without antibodies. You need you need it to some degree. Couple more. 
Why is the liturgical calendar in Lent looked down upon by some evangelicals? That's another good question. Um, again, I don't want to be in the position of defending anything, uh, but what I would say is that the danger with the liturgical calendar is that it can become um, an outward observance that is empty, that there's not a um, live experience of the Holy Spirit within it. It can be a dry sort of going through the motions and a way of perhaps trying to sense people sensing they're trying to earn their way somehow to God. So I think people look down on it for that reason, but I also think people look down on it because what, uh, and you knew this was coming at some point that I was going to quote C.S. Lewis, but, uh, but Lewis talks a lot about the idea of chronological snobbery. And I think that there's a lot of that in our world today, even in the Christian world, where we think that we have sort of moved beyond the things that people used to do in ancient times. And so I think that in, for some people, there's a disdain for the liturgical year because it is associated with an old way of being Christian. And for some people associated with the Catholic Church, which they have problems with. But I think that, uh, you know, it's sort of like the, that old commercial of try it, you'll like it. Uh, that people that, um, and we have many people like this at St. Philip's that are not from an Anglican background, who are from a non-denominational evangelical megachurch background, for him, the liturgical year is very strange and something to be sort of gotten over. But as they come and lean into it, they see the beauty and the richness and the texture of it, of how it can give life to your relationship with God in a way that is really remarkable. Yeah, yeah I think, I mean, I, I can speak to this because this is what I grew up with, grew up in it, and then didn't like it, rejected it usually because of a misunderstanding, which is what we've tried to do tonight is try to correct some common misunderstandings. You know, one that I always said was, well, you should not just devote a little bit of the time of the year to confess your sins. You should do that all the year. Well, yeah, but generally, if you don't set aside any time to do it, you're not going to do it really ever. So there is some wisdom in setting aside particular times for different things, not because we don't do it other times, but um, just setting a time because it's important. So usually misunderstandings. One more? Okay. I should point out that people want you to know that Salomon is a good fish. <laughs> mentioned by me to say that. That sounds really important. So okay. Right now. <laughs> good to know. Um, <laughs> Thank you for that. Can Lent be both something you give up and or add on into your life, or does it strictly mean to give something up? No, I think it can definitely be both. I think that the idea of um, giving up something in self-denial is important for the reasons that we already talked about, but I think taking on something is also can be very important in your observance of Lent, and that's, that's why I like the idea of living under a daily rule, because it incorporates both of those things. Um, but I do think, you know, doing, uh, one of the things I do, I have a really good friend, Betsy Cahill, uh, who writes a really wonderful daily Lenten devotional. And so that is one of the things that I always take on during Lent is doing that devotional. And I would commend it to you. It has a scripture reflection. It also has a musical selection and uh, usually a piece of art as well. So it's really good for reflection. 
Uh, but I think that taking on of something like that can be something that's very helpful spiritually. Yeah, I might even go so far to say you, you actually, I don't know if you can ever truly just give up something. Like, you always have to do something in place of it, right? And that's the way, the secret to defeating sin in your life. Just, anybody want to know it? It's actually loving God more than your sin. So you have to put something positive in the place of what you're trying to give up. So I, yes. I, I think it's absolutely you have to take something else on, and the more specific, the better. But it's not just, oh, I'm just going to stop this. Well, that's not going to really help. You actually need to start thinking concretely and practically, what are some things that are going to help the opposite of this temptation that I've been doing uh, before? So, yeah. Okay. So hopefully we whet your appetite for Lent. Tomorrow's Ash Wednesday. We have services at 8 o'clock in the morning, 10 or noon. 12 noon, 12 and noon, seven. and 6 p.m. That'll be the 12 we'll have music, and the 6 we'll have music, I yeah. think. Yeah. So, but those three, 8, 12, and 6, we'd love to have you join us or go to any church on Ash Wednesday. Uh, stick around. Again, we'll be out of here in 15 minutes, but we can go right on over and keep the conversation going. So thank you all for coming thank tonight. Thank you so much for coming. And if you're not on our list, make sure um, to do that QR code. Thanks. Sweet. Thank you all.